0: Sometime this spring, there's an event I want to tell you about, but I got ahead of myself. Tonight, from Luke chapter 1, uh, just like to show a simple truth from a prophecy of Zechariah after he was unable to speak and then able to speak at the birth of his son to show how appropriate it is for us to praise God for sending Jesus into the world. It's a very simple truth. I, I think you'll see it's kind of uh, doubly true. Yes, God sent Jesus into the world to save sinners, but God sent Jesus into the world to save sinners who would worship him. And it's for that reason, it's it's doubly true that if you're a sinner who has been saved by the Son sent into the world, that you would praise him. Very simple truth, but one I trust will become clear uh, sometime this spring, April or May, something like that over at our house on third street, a neighbor, a few doors down had a house fire and we were getting back from a walk, uh, the four of us. And, uh, we went into our backyard. If you've been to our house, we were putting things in the garage and I saw smoke that was kind of coming a direction. And there was more of it than I'm used to seeing. And I took a couple steps this way and a huge fireball came out the back window of his house, and. Uh, really hit me. And I, I mean, the fire didn't, but it, there's, there was an emergency and I gave Karis a Jen and I said, hold her and ran inside and I grabbed my phone and I'm like trying to focus and dial nine one one. And I got over there and somebody from second street had come across the yard and actually already woken up the man. He had just started a third shift. I think he set out in like Niles, a new job. And so he's passed out on the couch. This is five, six in the evening, something like that. Seven o'clock. Um, The neighbor from 2nd Street had come over, had beat on his door, woken him up, gotten him out of the house and saved his life. And it really ended up being quite a spectacle uh, with all the fire trucks and everything that evening. Um, this This man's name was Dan, got to talk to him a little bit. And just hypothetically, somebody who's been saved, spared from the fire like that, it would really have been unthinkable in that moment for Dan to turn around and run back into the fire right? It wouldn't make any sense. Wouldn't expect that to happen. He'd been spared from really his life had been spared. He'd been spared from burning. He'd been spared from the smoke damage to his lungs. He had really, you could say in a manner of speaking, he had been saved so he could be free to live his life, right? It would then of course be appropriate for him to thank that person. And I know he tried and he couldn't find that murder. <clears throat> which is kind of interesting. He wasn't looking to get credit for saving that man's life. Um, But Dan tried to go back and thank this neighbor who none of us really, I don't think to this day, really know who it was. But uh, then of course, it would be appropriate to live your life, to live the life that they saved you to live, right? You could even say that part of being thankful to that person would be living the life he saved you to go and live. it's just right for us to be thankful To live that life with gratefulness, since that's, in a manner of speaking, exactly the life that person saved you to be. Of course, in that moment, it was just a man who saw fire and did the right thing, and he's not thinking all these things. But it's right to be thankful and to live his life. Tonight, I want to ask and answer just three questions to show how appropriate it is to praise God for sending Christ into the world. This text comes at the end of a narrative. After Zechariah had been struck dumb for some 10 months or more, as a priest of many years and now an old man, he had been chosen by lot, the Bible tells us, for the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go into the holy place, go right up to the curtain of the holiest of holies, and keep the incense burning. This would have only happened once in his life, and not even every priest would have been given this honor. This is kind of the pinnacle of his career. And who does he meet there? Everyone outside, the rest of the Levites are praying. I heard someone say, don't leave church early because things happen after church. He was in there and they're praying and they're having to pray a long time because inside the, ten- the tabernacle, the temple, Zechariah has met an angel from the Lord who tells him that he's going to have a son and that he and his wife Elizabeth, even in their old age, they would have a son and name him John. And he would be the forerunner of the Lord, preaching powerfully to many of his countrymen. But you remember, Zechariah doubted this word on account of his age and Elizabeth's age. And because he had doubted, what was the sign that he was given? That it would come to pass. It would be that he could not speak. Can you imagine? First child, in your old age, can't speak. Of course, after John was born, Zechariah scribbles it on the tablet. His name is John. And everybody's like, where are you getting this name? Nobody's name is John. Apparently they didn't think it was a good name. I don't know why, but Zechariah's mouth was opened. And the Bible says he was praising God. This is really a remarkable series of events. But part of his praise to God was a prophecy here recorded for us. And... Filled with the Holy Spirit, Luke chapter 1, verse 67. John's father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit. He's praising Christ. He's praising the Father in the ways most instructive for us. As we read, I'll just point out in verses 68 and 69, he's praising God and kind of stating his reasons for doing so. It's really God's salvation, his redemption, his visitation. And then he locates what God has done and shows what has brought this about in the next few verses. It's really God's word. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. And then he states God's purpose. To grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. God's rescuing so that they would worship. It's right for us to praise God for Christ, since that's what God sent Christ for. To rescue us, not just for us, but for him. To praise him. So we should praise him. Let's read. Luke chapter 1, verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied being rescued from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And in the rest of his prophecy, he turns his attention to his newborn son and then back to the Messiah. But we'll leave that for another time. Why does God deserve our praise for sending Christ? Three questions. What did God do in sending the Messiah? What compelled God to send the Messiah? And then what really is the result from the rescue of the Messiah. What did God do in sending Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one, his son? I think you notice first God's gracious covenant here. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited us. God is coming to them. He has accomplished redemption for us. He has paid a price. There's a, a purchase here and he has Raised up a horn of salvation for us. There's a rescue. Jesus is God's gracious visitation to Israel. And this is part of his covenant with them. To visit here is to look after. This isn't just you visiting your family member. This is you visiting someone in the hospital. You're going and looking after them. You're tending to them, giving them special attention. This isn't just God sending a prophet who says, thus says the Lord. This is God coming himself to be near them. It's personal presence. It's very much like in Egypt when God's presence is with them and there's the pillar of fire and cloud. He himself is with them. He comes to the tabernacle. He comes to the temple and they see his presence. God has visited us. But you also notice as he says, "Lord God of Israel, for He has visited us and accomplished redemption." I believe this is a reference to God visiting by sending Jesus. So it's not just God visited us in general, but God is sending God to be with us. He doesn't call him Emmanuel here, but I think you you get insight into Zachariah's faith. And if you doubt that, that that's perhaps what he's saying. Look down at the end of this prophecy. He's talking to his son in verse 76. You, child, John, will be called the prophet of the Most High. So he's a prophet of God. Big deal. Uh, That's a privilege. He's the first one in a while, but he gets more specific. It's not just God in heaven, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. This is a statement about the cousin who would soon be born. Zechariah has a definite faith that this one who's going to be born of Mary is the Lord. So I think you see back in verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He has visited us. He, like his wife Elizabeth, believes that that unborn baby in cousin Mary's belly is the Lord. He is God coming to be with us. Jesus is God's gracious visitation. To Israel but Jesus is also God's costly redemption for Israel blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he's visited us and accomplished redemption for his people this is purchasing it's the idea of a purchase out of slavery you could say someone said by price out of the hands of God's justice you may wonder who is who what is this purchase to is Jesus buying us out of the hands of the devil no He's not the one whose wrath must be satisfied. Jesus' blood paid the price, you could say, to the Father for our sin. By price out of the hands of God's justice. could also say by power out of the hands of Satan's tyranny. Because as sinners, we are under the, the power of sin and the power of the devil. And we need freed from that. We cannot free ourselves from that. And Jesus is that costly redemption. He would pay that price. This is the sense of Old Testament saints, true believers who are looking and praying for the Messiah. Look ahead to Luke chapter two, verse 38. This is after Jesus is born. He's brought up to the temple by his parents. Uh, Simeon comes and blesses them. And then they see the prophetess Anna. Look at verse 38. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of, of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. The Bible refers to her as a prophetess. It really depicts her as a woman who really was a saint, a believer. wouldn't really have called her a Christian at this point. But someone we would see in heaven, what was she looking for? She was looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when she saw that baby by faith, she knew this is the redemption of Israel. Look back at Luke chapter 1 verse 68. This is what Zechariah believed. He has visited us, He has accomplished redemption for his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation. us, This horn is a, a symbol of strength. You could maybe translate it. People have translated it as, he has raised up a mighty salvation for us or a strong savior for us. This is a salvation that would bring great renown to God. Like the salvation of God delivering his people from Egypt. Every time, many times God is talking about delivering the people from Egypt or after the exile, calling all of his people back from all of the lands. It's it's as though he's speaking in ways, he, he is speaking in ways, as though he would be known as the God of the Exodus or the God who would return all his people from all the ends of the earth. It's it's a kind of renown that would come to his name because of the might of the deed it's not just heroic it's not merely brave this salvation but it's almighty salvation it's eternal salvation it's far reaching to all the corners of the earth this salvation he has raised up a horn of salvation for us that's the sense it's a great salvation it's not just that he got spared from burning his finger he got spared from burning in hell Jesus is God's mighty salvation of Israel. This is visitation, redemption, salvation. This is God's grace to his people, and it is in keeping with his covenant to them. God made the Jews his special people, and when he sent the Messiah to them, that was proof that he intended to keep his covenant with them. This is a mighty salvation indeed. But then Zechariah narrows it. It's a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. And here I want to draw our attention to what exactly was compelling God to do this. Not just what did he do, but why did he do it, you could say. And here, not so much God's covenant, but you can notice God's word, God's decree. He said he would do it. And now he is doing it exactly like he said. And you see that first it's in the house of David, his servant. Well, what's significant about this? You know that David was promised a son on the throne. Turn back, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 33. We look many places. Second Samuel 7 is when it's first mentioned, the Davidic covenant. This is something that many other times in the scripture comes out, in the Psalms as well. Jeremiah 33, verse 14. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah, notice this language, will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So you can kind of imagine a man like Zechariah before the Messiah comes reading something like this and kind of filling in the blanks. And you can kind of understand why he's saying what he's saying. He believed this. For thus says the Lord, verse 17, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to prepare sacrifices continually. Turn back to Psalm 132. In the house of David. This is God's promise to David, repeated in the mouths of others. Look at verse 10. Psalm 132, verse 10. For the sake of David, your servant, do not turn away the face of your anointed. The Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back. Of the fruit of your body I will set upon your throne. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I will teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forever. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her needy with bread. Listen to this and think of how this would strike somebody like Zechariah. Her priests also I will clothe with salvation. And her godly ones will sing aloud for joy. There I will cause the horn of David to spring forth. I have prepared a lamp for mine anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall shine. These were very personal, very specific promises to people like Zechariah that would have filled their hearts with joy and gratitude. And you see that coming out here. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. God promised to David, and he would not go back on that. And now that it's happening, it's proof. Some suggest this is another indication that Mary had uh, David's blood, um, was in the line of David somehow, because maybe not everything about Joseph's lineage would have been clear to someone like Zachariah at that time. Of course, is the under the inspiration of the Spirit. But this is a promise to David, and now it's coming to pass. But he also says... God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. He deserves praise for this. But now look at this in verse 70. As he spoke by the mouth, singular, of his holy prophets from of old, and he quotes here, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Not only was this God's promise to David, this was also... You could say a singular message that kept coming through prophet after prophet after prophet. Turn to Psalm 106. Someone has pointed out that the fact that it's the mouth, singular, of the prophets, is really pointing to the fact that this is God's plan. None of this was on accident. This was premeditated and purposeful, Psalm 106. Look in verse 10, and then we'll look down toward the end of the chapter. Psalm 106, verse 10, this really is a record of, in many cases, Israel's unfaithfulness. Look back at verse 6. We have sinned like our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have behaved wickedly. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember your abundant kindnesses, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for the sake of his name, that he might make his power known. There you see God's renown. Thus he rebuked the Red Sea and it dried up and he led them through the deeps as through the wilderness. So he saved them from the hand of the one who hated them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. And you see how the enemies are clothed with shame. The waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise and they lived happily ever after, right? No, read the next verse. They quickly forgot his works. They didn't wait for his counsel. They craved intensely in the wilderness and tempted God in their desert. So he gave them their request, but sent a wasting disease among them. Look at verse 16. They became envious of Moses. Look at verse 19. They made a calf in Horeb. Look at verse 28. They joined themselves also to Baal, to Baal. Verse 32. They also provoked him to wrath at the waters of Meribah. Verse 34. They did not destroy the peoples. It just keeps getting worse. But now look down at verse 40. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his inheritance. Then he gave them into the hand of the nations, and those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies also oppressed them, and they were subdued under their power. Many times he would deliver them. They, however, were rebellious in their counsel, and so sank down in their iniquity. You'd say, okay, they probably got more chances than they deserved you kind of get the sense of the cycle of the judges here where God delivers them and then they go back. God delivers them and they go back and live for a generation in service to the Lord and then they sin again. But look at verse 44. This is the mercy of God. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry and he remembered his covenant for their sake and relented according to the greatness of his loving kindness. He also made them objects of compassion in the presence of all our captors. So when you go back to Luke chapter 1, verse 71, it's not just once that God did that. That God delivered them from their enemies and from the hand of all who hated them. God did that many, many, many times. They literally have a national hymn testifying to it. This has been the cycle of their whole history, that God, out of the abundance of his loving kindness, remembering his covenant for their sake, there's nothing about this that they deserve. God kept doing this, and I was doing it again. You can see why the Jews might have thought their their oppression under Rome was God's judgment on them. When did they not have national sovereignty before? It's when they disobeyed God. So those who truly believed, you can see why they would put these pieces together, even though there aren't prophets speaking in those days. You know, we don't have a land. We're basically occupied territory. The Romans are in charge. Lord, save us. Not just from Rome, although some people had that idea exclusively. Save us from our sin. So even here, is he he's saying, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, that's something God did repeatedly. And that was a message that God was saying over and over again, a singular message. You need saved from your enemies. Yes, you need saved from the Midianites. You need saved from the Philistines. You need saved from the Babylonians. You need saved from the Assyrians. You need saved from this and this and this. But what do you really need saved from? You need to save from the sin that's getting you into that mess every time. And here's Jesus, the Messiah, who takes away the sin of the world. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, God said it. Now he's bringing it to pass. Look at Jeremiah 31 really quickly. Jeremiah chapter 31. And verse 10. This is something God wanted people to know. And here it is again, God declaring it through the mouth of another prophet. Jeremiah 31, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare in the coastlands afar off and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and redeemed him from the hand of him who is stronger than he. They will come and shout for joy on the height of Zion and they will be radiant over the bounty of the Lord, over the grain and the new wine and the oil and over the young of the flock and the herd and their life will be like a watered garden and they will never languish again. So is he talking about right now? Is he talking about right after the exile? Is he talking about the new covenant? Then the virgin will rejoice in the dance and the young men and the old together for I will turn their mourning into joy and I will comfort and give them Joy for their sorrow. I will fill the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people will be satisfied with my goodness. This is as people in Israel are turning to God from their sin. They're being saved from their political captors, their political oppressors, but it's as they're filled with goodness in the Lord. God said it. This is what the people were to believe. This is God's plan. And now it's really coming to a very sharp point in Jesus. God said it to David. God said it through the prophets. God said it to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father. We won't take the time to look at that, but Genesis 12, Genesis 17, Genesis 22, it's repeated multiple times. It's reiterated to Isaac. It's reiterated to Jacob. And it really keeps kind of building on it. I will give you descendants as the sand on the sea, as the stars of the sky, more than you can count. I will give you a land. All the nations of the earth will be blessed in you. All of this sending of Jesus to rescue them from their enemies. And most of all, the enemy of sin Is his keeping of his covenant. He said he would do it. So why is he doing it? It's because he said so. And God will never change his mind. God will never go back on his word. Praise his name. This is God's absolute decree. It's him keeping his covenant of loving, his loving kindness, you could say. And he's doing it as though he is bound and cannot do other than his word. He spoke and his words never failed. But finally, notice, and this is kind of the culmination, I think, of this idea that we should praise God for sending Jesus because that's why he sent him. Notice the result. What happens as a result of this? To grant us, verse 74, that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So what results from the rescue of the Messiah when when Jesus comes to Israel and he rescues them? What happens when Jesus comes and he rescues you? What happens? It's God's rightful worship. And it's not just what he deserves. It's actually what he originally intended. This is God's original plan. And as he's rescuing people, he's he's bringing them back and he's he's fixing them. They're broken, right? They're they're twisted. They're They're not fulfilling the purpose for which they were made. They're worshiping themselves. But when Jesus comes in and he rescues you from sin and he fixes you and he makes you right and he makes you like Adam and Eve were before sin, and we're not all the way there. It's, it's slow. It's progressive over time. And it's not even just to be like Adam and Eve in their innocence. It's actually like Jesus in his righteousness. He fixes us so that we worship right. Brother Chris showed a slide this morning in Christian Life Hour that repentance is a new worship. This is, this is what Jesus is plucking us out of the fire for. Not just fire insurance, but but a new life of worship. And you see, that's what happens. To grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days. This is free worship. It's not extracted from us like some dictator who says, tell me I'm great. No, this is just, it's free. It's spontaneous. We don't even have to be asked to do this. And we're not hindered in doing it by our sin. It's fearless worship. And it's true worship. I say it's free worship. What do I mean? Well, we don't come out of the womb worshiping God, do we? No. We naturally worship ourselves. We need freed from the bondage of our sin, if we will worship God. We come out enslaved. I was just, I don't remember who I was talking about with this, about this yesterday. If you start with the idea in your life that you're a blank slate and that you tend towards good, of course, you're never going to be able to get yourself out of a heap of trouble because you think that all of the problems are outside of you. But the Bible says it's exactly the opposite. The problem starts inside of you. You are born in sin. You are a sinner. You sin because you are a sinner. It's just natural. And we can't do anything to free ourselves from this bondage if we will worship God. God didn't just ask Pharaoh for a day off so the people could go to church, did he? They needed freed from their slavery entirely in order to serve and worship God. They were restricted. They were in bondage. They were being worked tirelessly. God didn't ask. God demanded that Pharaoh let Israel go so they could serve him. You remember? Let my people go. We remember that part. So that they can serve me in the wilderness. That's what Moses said. And this wasn't freedom so that they would never work again, but so that they could be free to worship him as he directed them to they're not enslaved to the wicked demands of pharaoh and just by analogy sin is a terrible taskmaster isn't it someone depicted hell partly in terms of you're just always being driven around and always being ridden like a horse and you're never allowed to stop you're never given rest i don't the bible doesn't talk about that but sin is it's a terrible taskmaster It always runs you ragged, serving sin, never having rest for your souls, always wanting the next thing. You're just hooked and you can't get away. We need the power of sin broken in order to worship God. And that's what Jesus came to do, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, maybe he has in mind Rome, but I think as a a believer, he definitely has in mind sin, Being freed from our enemies, we might serve him without fear. In Egypt, the Jews couldn't even have babies without fear, let alone worship God. Same in exile, under the authority of a Babylonian king who's saying, you cannot worship any god but me. Or I guess he was uh, Persian. This is what Daniel, Daniel couldn't even pray out his window without fear of being thrown into the lion's den had to be freed from that god did free him from that it's the same in rome in zachariah's day caesar different ones at different times demanded worship worship of god could be seen as treasonous at times certainly in a place like like ephesus they're turning the world upside down proclaiming that athena is not a god rome was worldly It was unfriendly to clean living. There was no friendship to grace in those days, and there is none in ours. This is worship without fear. I think we could say in our day, the fact that we can meet freely is a gift. That is the way that it should be. Those who oppose free exercise of true worship to the the true God are in the wrong. But what's resulting here, it's worship. And it's not just free, but it's true worship. That we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Holiness, they, they belong to God. They are separated from the world unto God. And serving worshiping in righteousness. They're obeying God. They're living by his precepts. They're conforming to the standard of his character. This is very much, this image is very much like God rescuing Israel from Egypt. He didn't rescue them from Egypt so they could do whatever they wanted to do. He rescued them from Egypt and he gave them the law, which showed them exactly what holiness and righteousness in their worship and in their lives was. He didn't free them in the words of what we were talking about yesterday in Men's Bible Fellowship to absolute freedom without limits. Sometimes when we talk about being free, we get this idea of no rules. No. We're free from the slavery to sin and free to serve God. And that's the most wonderful kind of freedom and the most wonderful kind of slavery. Because he's a good master. God frees us so that we can worship him as we were created to do. This is what Adam and Eve did. This is what everybody who was born from then should have done. Can you imagine the world being populated with people who never have to be freed from worshiping themselves? They just, they know God deserves worship and they want to do it. They love God. That's what it's going to be like. But God finally does redeem these things. Someone said, God is on a mission to redeem and restore fallen creatures to the image of his son. God God is saving us so that we would worship him. He doesn't save us for us, but for him. Ask yourself the question, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. He saves us so we can do what we were created to do, so that we can achieve our chief telos, our chief purpose in life, the reason for why we exist. We cannot do this on our own, because on our own, we're enslaved to sin. We need a Savior. And it's for this reason that it's, you could say, doubly right to praise God for sending Jesus. Yes, because he saves us from sin, but also, and we ought to praise him for that, but because he saves us so we would worship. So, yeah, let's praise him. That's what he saved us for. Even as Zechariah is exalting the Christ, calling him Lord and God, I have to ask, have you called on God to save you from sin? Have you called on Christ? To save you from sin. You are not, you will never find your reason for existence if you have not done that. If he saved you from his judgment and from Satan's power, then do you praise him for saving you? That really is what he saved you to do. If you're going back to live your life for yourself, you really miss the whole point of God's saving you. It's like being rescued from the fire. The whole point of being saved from the fire is so that you can be saved. Why go back into it? Live the life God freed you to live, the life of worship to him. That's the reason he sent Christ to rescue sinners to himself, so that they would praise him as they should, as they were created to be. it's for this reason we should praise jesus god with us come into the world to save sinners because that's what god sent him to do let's pray lord jesus we do want to exalt you tonight we we do worship you as our king as our lord as god as our savior and i pray that we wouldn't forget this simple truth that we were saved To praise you. We're not here for ourselves. We're not even saved for ourselves. Although we rejoice in that almighty, wonderful, eternal salvation. We're saved for you. Help us to remember it and help us to praise you. And really live like it. Live in holiness and righteousness. Because that's what true worship is is and does. It's not just when we gather here on Sunday. It really is every moment of our lives living according to what you are. Help us, Lord. This is this is these are lofty thoughts. And we feel our own inadequacy. But we know for in Christ that you've given us your spirit and You want this for us. You want us to be more like Jesus. You want us to do all that which pleases you and you will help us. So we ask for your help to please you as we should. We thank you that you're gracious and full of loving kindness and forgiveness. We would not be here without you and we love you. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.